Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Dive Living Podcast. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Die Living Podcast, brought to you as always by Softleet. This week, we're chatting with Brooke West, our in-house dietitian, uh, registered dietitian nutritionist, and we are chatting with her coming back from a continuing education conference, the SCAN conference, I believe it was, uh, and it sounds like Brooke learned a ton there, so we're going to digest that, no pun intended, distill it down and uh, dig into it. So with that, <clears throat> welcome back. We'll kick it off. Brooke, I know from watching your social media that it seems like there was a ton of information that was pouring in at this conference. So um, can you start off by telling us a little bit about like what the conference was, why you wanted to go, um, you know, what it is kind of compared to other nutritionists or dietitian conferences? Yeah, it was an amazing experience. Uh, SCAN stands for uh, Sports Cardiovascular and Wellness, and it's a practice group of registered dietitians who work in um, heart health. A lot of them are wellness. They work for sports teams. Um, and then you have kind of like random ones like me who have different kind of non-traditional roles. And we, um, every year there's a big conference for this dietetic practice group. And there's a lot of conferences they do. There's a huge one I went to last year. They call um, Fancy, which is just food. In nutrition conference and expo, which is cool. But I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people and a lot of it doesn't necessarily always pertain to sports and performance. Mm -hmm. So this year I was like, you know what, I want to try a different big conference. And so I thought that this was perfect, especially for obviously kind of the application of what we do at Softweight. Um, and I was not disappointed. It was, um, like kind of brain overload, but in a good way. It's all these researchers mostly who come from all over uh, we went up to Keystone for this conference, which was kind of cool. We were in like the middle of nowhere. We all flew into Denver and then I'm driving an hour and a half up in snow. Was not expecting that. Not prepared at all for that <laughs> because the temperature said 35 and um, I'm like, well, why is there a foot and a half of snow? What's happening? But I'm going to just keep going. And then you get up there and there's really nothing there but resorts and beautiful mountains. But we start at 8 a.m., we go till 7 p.m., and it's just all new research, um, talking, talking about a lot of topics that have become trendy, and now we're looking at the research of, well, does it actually work? Does it meet the claims? So that's always really exciting, and uh, you definitely learn a lot. So that was a lot of fun, and we did get awesome long lunch breaks where we could go hike. So I would just like disappear and go explore and went up to Loveland's pass was probably my favorite non nerdy thing I did, but that was super cool to see like the continental divide. And I think it was like 13,000 feet. All right. You were like up with the clouds. It was pretty cool. That's a good climb. How long did that take you? I did not hike that. I drove uh, up right. that. You, <laughs> you drive up there, and then this is when it was snowing, and I was gotcha. literally in my Air Force Ones with no hiking boots, so I couldn't hike up to the tippy-tippy top, but I walked up a little bit to get the gorgeous view, like the 360 view. Um, I was not brave enough to hike all the way up in with my tennis shoes unprepared. Understandable. Well, all right. Um, so... 
going back to the conference, you know, with this specifically being targeted towards athletes and I guess, you know, registered dietitian nutritionists that are writing programs or, you know, focused on athletics. What was the, like the single most interesting or kind of, you know, mind blowing thing that you got out of the conference? I have to say my favorite presenter of research was about brain health and omega threes mm -hmm. that blew my mind. Um, I myself have had way too many concussions, um, some sports related, some accident related. And I knew, you know, obviously concussions are a traumatic brain injury that have crazy repercussions, but to then hear this research and this presentation was amazing. Um, his name was Dr. Lewis and he actually was hired um, by the DOD like to do um, brain health research specifically for omega-3s. And what was interesting is he was saying they hired him and he himself didn't know a lot about it. I forget why they picked him, mm -hmm. but they kind of handpicked him for this task. Um, and he obviously dived right in and found some really, really, or dove in and found some really interesting things. But uh, basically most of his research was about omega-3s and there's two types. There's long chain and there's short chain. Mm -hmm. And the long chain are just more potent and more effective. And the two main ones are EPA and DHA. So he was looking at those and how it affects the brain. But one of the big points he brought up is so many military personnel um, suffer TBIs and you would never know it. Concussions are kind of the... Like you won't look at someone and be like, wow, like they've struggled with a TBI. Yeah. Um, so he was saying that it's really important to acknowledge and treat these things, even though it might not be visible. Yeah, I know. Um, just to cut you off for a second. I know one of uh, one of our guys here, Nick, is actually going through studies for like TBI research with no single specific event that happened. But just from uh, years of exposure to like breach door breaching charges and, you know, like kind of explosive concussive blasts, uh, even if they weren't, you know, like an injury or, you know, like a bomb or IED that was like detonated under a vehicle or, you know, that type of thing. Just being just kind near of, it. Just being near it and, you know, going through, you know, breaching charge after breaching charge in close proximity um, and, and I guess ways that they used to obviously think was, you know, not hazardous. Uh, and now they're trying to figure out what, what the effects of that might be. It was, he talked specifically about that too. Really? He was saying that the, that's, he was saying the DOD now is like pumping millions of dollars into specifically like things like that. Um, which, which was funny because he was saying this frustrates me because they could be using that money to basically distribute omega-3 supplements to the troops because ultimately what he found in all the years of research he did was that it has a protective effect before the injury, but then mm. it also helps after the injury. Interesting. So uh, I think the recommended dose was around 40 milligrams per kilogram. So if you weighed like 100 kilograms, it would be about 4,000 milligram supplement. Mm -hmm. So if you took that every day and then something did happen, you would recover faster. The effects wouldn't be as strong. Um, they did really interesting research in mice where they like obviously this is horrible, but they gave them strokes or traumatic brain injury to kind of watch how that affected the before and after. And that's what they found in animals. So they were saying, why don't we just go ahead and apply it to humans instead of wasting all this money to like keep going at it. But right. it'll be interesting to see what happens. Do we know why that 
why those omega threes, especially the long chain omega threes, have that type of influence on the brain? So the there's this crazy biochemical reaction that happens when you have a TBI. And one of the main things is that it causes inflammation. And that's what leads to months and years down the road. It increases your risk of dementia, um, macular degeneration, and things like that. Uh, but basically the omega-3s, and specifically the long chain, because they're the more potent of the type of omega-3s, they can help to with the inflammation basically. So you're mm -hmm. not having as many effects. So the recommendation was that 40 milligrams per kilogram, but, um, it was just also fascinating to learn. It's honestly a lot of biochemistry, but that was like the gist of it that, that anti-inflammatory properties help. It seems like a big underlying theme in medicine over the last probably decade or so, just in general is that we're seeing so many things, so many uh, diseases and you know whatnot, uh, you know ailments are tied to basically inflammation at the root cause, right? Things mm -hmm. that we thought maybe had other sources um, or were totally unrelated, uh, especially you know things like uh, brain injuries, think you know Alzheimer's, et cetera. Um, that we're learning so much about basically body recovery is the best tool to fight things rather than, you know, like a medicine or something like that. Absolutely. And so, that was one of the other recommendations they had was normally when you have a concussion or something happens, they tell you they'll treat your symptoms and they'll give you medicine to treat different things. But he was basically saying in reality that we need to stop doing that as a culture for a lot mm -hmm. of things because it leads to polypharmacy and you have all these different pills and then you have a pill to treat the side effect of a pill and it's just kind of not a really good health pattern. So if we start to think about ways to, in our practices, whether that's omega-3 supplements, getting really good sleep, like chronic stress and sleep cause inflammation. Mm -hmm. So if we can do these things to, you know, not go down the route of inflammation, we're going to recover faster. It's going to have a protective effect. And that's basically what they found is if you pre, like before anything happens to you, if you are really good about taking omega-3 and then you have this nerve, they call it, um, it's like a neuroprotective effect, I guess is what they called it. But it's basically protecting your brain in that case. Mm -hmm. But I think if you like, you can apply that to basically anything, sure. if, you know, because all these different lifestyle diseases are related to inflammation. Yeah. Did this guy say anything about whether the DOD is moving in that direction to start giving people omega-3 supplements or is that still kind of in the research phase? He said as of right now, they do not. Um, but... The thing is, when you do nutrition research, it's really expensive because mm -hmm. you have to have a very controlled study and it's hard to work with people. Right. So a lot of the studies they do are in animals and then they say, well, in animals it shows this, but it may help with this. Mm -hmm. And so he was saying for pennies a day, we could give all the troops omega-3 and just have that be a part of their like lifestyle and help with if something did happen. And he's like, but instead they're trying to pump it into human research to keep finding a definitive answer. Right. And there's really not a negative effect, I guess, of using omega-3 supplements. 
Uh, if you take too many, it can thin your thin your blood. So, you know, if you did something, you might bleed a little longer and be mindful of that. But mm-hmm. really, there's there's no contamination. I know a lot of people say there's mercury in supplements, but they uh, have been tested by consumer labs, and That's there's not. Like specifically for fish oil, really, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Because so there's um, you can get omega threes from flaxseed and plants, mm-hmm. but they're not as potent. So you would have to eat like a crazy amount of plant based omega threes versus fish or fish oil. Yeah. So that's kind of the why that's the go to, I guess. And now it seems like CBD is actually potentially replacing fish oil is like the next source or the best source of omega threes is my understanding. Yes. I think you recently <coughs> switched from fish oil to CBD as well, right? Yes. So now I I used to do fish oil every day and now I do CBD oil every day. And one of the things with a lot of the cannabis related research is that because it's not federally legal, the NIH and all these different companies won't fund it. Mm -hmm. And if you do research at your university and you have medical marijuana or whatever it is on your property, the government won't fund the university. So even in states where it's legal, like Colorado, um, they have to do these weird things to get around those laws so that the university keeps getting funding. So I think the reason we don't hear a lot about that as much is because there's just limited animal research right now. Sure. But I think that, you know, we're seeing a changing landscape and that you'll see a lot more research on that for sure. Well, I think it may have been you that said this in the office, uh, that one of the things that was kind of a big benefit of CBD versus fish oil is that the ratio of omega three to omega six is, is like, is, you know, the, the optimal ratio. Um, and that reminded me of when we had, uh, Dr. Sidner and Ross here, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that Dr. Sidner mentioned was one of the biggest benefits of like true grass fed beef is the fact that you're getting this like really optimal ratio of omega three to omega sixes. So why is that important in a supplement? You know, if you if you only need the omega threes, or is it you know thinking about the the brain research you were talking about with the DOD, is it really only those long chain omega threes that are helping, or is it having the right ratio and overall increase in the omega threes and omega sixes? Well, in the research they specifically did, they used um, the DHA long chain, so they were taking a very specific type of long chain omega-3 to do research Mm -hmm. because they were kind of getting down to the biochemical level of looking at things. But overall, you know, you need omega-3s and omega-6s, but the American diet has way too many omega-6s. And so it Mm -hmm. throws off this ratio and causes an inflammatory response. But in CBD oil, it has that ideal ratio. And even in omega-3 supplements, it's just, um, or fish oil, I'm sorry, it's really, really high in omega-3s. But there's benefits to both. It's when you throw off these ratios that it causes problems. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that they're looking at with CBD is that it is this like ideal ratio of what your body wants and it is anti-inflammatory. And there was people there um, who presented at the conference from university of Colorado who presented on kind of like this, these, that's what they're studying part Mm -hmm. partially. They're doing a bunch of different studies that blew my mind, but that is one of them is that CBD oil or, consuming marijuana that has high CBD in it mm-hmm. actually helps with anti-inflammatory and like recovery for an athlete. So they're, Interesting. they're and that's using from the athletes. CBD because of the CBD source rather than just from the omega three and omega sixes. I, I mean, in their research, that's what 
they're studying. I don't know if they've compared. I don't think they have compared what is the CBD versus the omega-3. That would be really cool research if anyone's listening that's in a state where they're allowed to do that because I would really like to see that effect on other people. The other thing, you know, they mentioned at this conference is a lot of research money goes into treating diseases and like a very small portion of the budget is like, how do we make healthy people healthier and like perform better? So. I think that there's less money in that. Yeah. It's harder to like, if you have an idea to go do it because it takes millions of dollars to do research of nutrition sure. background. So why did you switch from omega three as a source from fish oil to CBD? Well, I switched for all those reasons we discussed, but also I just feel like I personally feel more comfortable consuming something from a plant instead of a manufactured supplement. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, I just, because fish oil, if you, you can actually get really good fish oil supplements. So you can get, you know, wild caught salmon fish oil supplements. They're going to cost you a pretty penny. Um, and I think it's important to be mindful of where the fish oil is coming from. Yeah. But if this is something you're taking in a high dose every day, um, you're probably getting it from like a generic what you find at CVS. And it's probably not the best sourced fish and stuff like that. Just I really like care about. And I think that, you know. The whole, I guess, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but sourcing fish and meat and things, especially like I really care about kind of the responsible farming aspect, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think there's two issues there. One is the ideologic and the the ethical side. You know, do you do you care about, you know, the source of of what you're putting in your body just from what it takes to get that ingredient, you know, to the, you know, to your mouth essentially. And then the other side is, does the quality of that ingredient actually affect, you know, your body in the process of digesting it, you know, distributing, et cetera. Um, And I think it's interesting that in general, in the supplement space, you have a lot of people that are taking supplements and the reason they're doing it is because they're putting so much effort and focus on performance and like, body change, et cetera. Um, and yet in an area where they could really affect a greater change by focusing on the quality of the input, uh, that they're putting into their body. That's one area that just gets like totally overlooked. Um, in fact, I was talking to Bill the other day specifically about CBD and he, one of the companies that he recommended that, uh, that I take a look at, he said, you know, their product has like 10 times the bioavailability of, you know, that the average CBD oil. I was like, dude, I don't even, I don't, I think <laughs> I know what that means, but I don't know what it means. Um, <clears throat> and maybe you can go into a little bit of detail about kind of what bioavailability is and why certain, certain products would be more bioavailable than others. Um, and, and how is a consumer, you know, I could find that out because even looking at this company's website after he specifically sent it to me, you know, it's like, man, I, I probably looked over it somewhere, but I wouldn't have even known to think about that. Yeah. Well, I think responsible, like, um, especially when it comes to CBD, just because of the federal climate, they have to really test it for it to be distributed. Mm-hmm. But so hopefully the company you would choose is doing that. But basically like my understanding of bioavailability is, that your body can only absorb certain amounts of certain things. So for example, the bioavailability of vitamin C in eating an orange versus taking a vitamin C supplement is different because your body can absorb and process the 
bio, uh, this is a lot of words, but it processes the food and you get more from the food than if you were to take the supplement. Mm -hmm. So that kind of thing matters. And that's the whole uh, multivitamin argument, I think. But um, when it comes to things like the CBD, I don't know too much about the difference there. For me, I I get um, organic because I don't want the pesticides. Um, that's what I look for in CBD. And that it's coming from a state where it's legal to produce mm -hmm. um, hemp plants. Apparently there's laws where it's okay, but I think that for me, I'm so I get it organic from Oregon, um, and it's tested to to make sure that it's got bioavailable CBD and that there's no THC. Right. All right. Um, and it sounds like there was a lot of research from our previous discussion about you know like marijuana and CBD and especially what we're seeing the effects in athletes. Can you tell us a little bit more about? about what you learned there? Yeah, this I met this amazing researcher from University of Colorado and she she was super cool. She has an awesome research team and I think um, I'll have to start by telling her story of like how they do this because uh, they the government will shut down their funding if there's any marijuana on school campus. And normally when you're doing research, you would do it in a lab and you would be like a very controlled, like this is your dosing and this is what you get and this is your strain or something, but they can't do that. So they like made this awesome mobile lab and they would take it to people's houses. So they would sign up athletes for their study and then the athletes would then have to like get their own product and you know, use it in their home. They weren't allowed to be in a lab and then the team would come to them. So I thought that was really well, interesting about how they had to do that. Picturing like the breaking bad Winnebago driving no, around but Colorado. Really? She's like, I wanted to put a shag <laughs> rug in here, but there was a rule against like collecting fluids around like, carpeting. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it could be get like really gross really quickly. She did have a sweet tapestry in there though. Cool. So they were, they were still trying to keep the vibe pretty chill. Yeah, um, a must for any like marijuana related research. <laughs> it was really, really interesting. Um, the main things they looked at a lot, well, they do animal studies too. And most of the research is in animals. And this is kind of like the frontier of the human research now mm -hmm. that the climate's changed and, you know, hopefully continues to change. But basically what they found was the marijuana use does not physically help your performance. It's not like a performance enhancing drug or anything. Mm -hmm. And it's not the world doping agency and all these other agencies don't regulate it actually for that reason. It's not people claim that marijuana use does enhance their physical performance. They do. So, but what they found is this is, we're not talking about like CBD oil specifically. We're talking we're about talking marijuana. Yeah. Right. Like THC. Um, it actually helps with your mental performance. So uh, it helps with so, like your motivation, your attitude and the mental state that you're in, mm -hmm. but it's not going to like physically make you stronger or faster. It's more right. of like a mental effect of confidence, I guess, or calming nerves. Sure. So they did research on stuff like that. Um, what did, do you know what they found? Basically that there's some evidence that it'll influence your motivation to work out. So even people, um, who don't normally maybe want to work out or they're not as motivated. It, it actually helped people be motivated to be active, which wow. I thought was interesting because a lot of the times you hear like, oh, it makes you lazy or yeah. this or that. It makes you eat a lot. <clears throat> <clears throat> One of the other things they looked at is if you look at huge just amounts of data for correlation that um, there's actually a negative relationship between obesity and marijuana use. All right. 
Whereas you would think, oh, well, if it makes you hungry and lazy, it's, you know, it's got to be correlated with obesity rates, but it's actually the exact opposite. Oh, so, so basically, if you want to be active, you want to smoke a joint, <laughs> <laughs> sit on the couch for a little bit and then go outside and do something awesome. Yeah. And when they f- further dug in, they were like, it makes sense, though, because people, if they're like, well, it hurts or I don't feel good or, you know, I got knee problems. A lot of that, those little things and those aches and pains would go away. And so people were willing to be more active. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, I guess. Did they say, or do you know how they did this type of research? You know, is it kind of, was it the the Winnebago driving around or? Really, that's how they have to do it all because they, um, or they do surveys like that. I think a lot of this is done through surveys and I think you can actually go online and take their survey. You can only take it if you're in a state where it's legal, um, at least medically Mm -hmm. and uh, complete the survey and they basically... So it's a self-reported survey. So obviously they're correlate. These are just correlations that, you know, you're drawing from a self-reported survey, but I think it's still pretty interesting um, that people felt more motivated to go do something. Right. Very interesting. And then the big one of course was um, with the recovery and anti-inflammatory. And one of the questions people were asking, well, like, well, does it matter the strain or the amount of CBD and THC? And they said that just because they don't have the ability to control those things, that they don't really know the answers to those yet. Do they think that the THC also helps or is that only coming from the CBD? That was one of the things everyone wanted to know, but they were basically, I don't even remember which part they reported. Um, but w- for their studies, it was definitely like smoking. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just CBD oil. So it would depend on the strain as to if there's like the THC to CBD ratio. Cause everyone was curious about that. So I, I wonder, have to go back and read their research. Do they have any idea as far as if you're smoking, do you, you know, are you getting that kind of CBD through the, you know, through the lungs? And if so, I mean, if you're smoking marijuana, are you even getting, an amount that would replace like a CBD oil pill or is it, you know, just like kind of a a tangential, you know, minor thing? I mean, when I, so I, I went into, when I went into one of the dispensaries, I was asking all these questions because it was after I had learned all this research. So I was in there and I was asking questions because when you go in, it says exactly how much THC is in a plant. And then it also says how much CBD is in a plant. So in some plants, there's none and some strains, there's none. And so that was the question is because there's also some where it's like right down the middle of like half THC, half CBD. But I think that you still do get those effects because it's um, receptors in your brain. So I'm thinking you would still get the effects from smoking something that had the CBD, like the high in that sense. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I'm wondering if... uh you know, like if your lungs can absorb it as efficiently or <clears throat> I'm sure there's some some difference between that and your stomach, but um, the idea yeah. is pretty interesting. They were talking about topicals as well, too. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing there was if you were topically using CBD um, and so they actually have topical THC, uh, it could be absorbed into your muscles and you'll have benefit and you'll feel benefit, but it's mm-hmm. not absorbed into the blood. So it's only really going to affect the muscle that it was like attached to. So you might not get like the full anti-inflammatory effects as you, if you were to take CBD. Right. So I thought that was interesting as well. Cause I know now that's one of the things, um, since it's 
you can get CBD now anywhere is you can buy like roll-ons and topical, mm-hmm. uh, which is helpful, but it's still different than if you yeah. were to consume it or like ingest it. Interesting. So what about, uh, you know, fad dispelling or anything like that? Or was there research that was presented at the conference that was kind of, hey, everything we thought for the last 20 years is actually wrong and here's why? There were definitely some. My, um, well, my favorite was probably dispelling the ketogenic diet myths (laughs) personally. Um, that is my next blog post. Brooke West, destroyer of keto. <laughs> That's like my mission now. I'm so, so tired of keto. Um, but they did some research, uh, that the ketogenic diet, as far as athletic performance has negative effects on athletic performance. Really? All right. Mm-hmm. So let's, I think, and this is something that I think really probably affects, you know, a lot of people that are listening to this podcast, because I bet almost everyone that's listening to this podcast has thought about keto at some point or had questions about it. I know it's something we've covered in the past, uh, and obviously, if you're listening to this, you probably care about athletic performance as well. So, do you go a little bit deeper? Tell us more. What did they? What did they find? So, uh, one interesting thing is um, when your body runs off ketones versus glucose, which is what happens when you, you know, actually do the ketogenic diet the right way, not just mm-hmm. a low carb, not this modified keto crap. But when you actually do keto, that's what's happening. That it actually reduces the oxidative stress on your body. Um, so you would think, oh, well, maybe that would help performance. Yeah, that sounds like a good thing, reducing stress. Right. It is a. Good, it's definitely a good thing when we're talking like overall lifestyle and health. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there's great benefit to weight loss for some people who can adhere to that diet. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to athletic performance, it's actually not good because your body performs better when you eat carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the other really interesting thing with that? Well, I really think that it's my thing is carbohydrates are a really important part of our diet. And if we cut out an entire food group, like there's a reason there's three macronutrients that the body uses. Mm -hmm. And the big thing there is also that she was talking about is that there's nutritional benefits to consuming carbohydrates and grains Mm -hmm. versus eliminating them from your diet. And that was one of the things that she kind of brought up is um, if you like she put up the whole my plate thing and was like, if you start eliminating whole food groups, these are all the micronutrients that you're also eliminating, which was one of the big points. Excuse me. Interesting. All right. So with that, I mean, did they go into any type of detail as far as like what the performance reduction was in terms of either different sports or age groups or, you know, how, how serious is the effect? Well, they did um, control like feeding studies. Mm -hmm. And so they'll start and they'll do baseline measurements. And I can't remember exactly what those were, but they'll do like baseline measurements for performance. And then they'll do these different diets and then they'll remeasure or retest these things. And the ketogenic diet had a negative effect on all these things versus having carbohydrates in your diet. And then another thing they looked at was that these lower carb diets also impact your immune function and they lower your immune function, which they argued could be part of why you're not performing as well Mm -hmm. because you're not recovering and you have a lower immune system. Right. Do you have a sense in the dietitian world 
is the have we like crested the keto hill or are we still is it still like trending up i think it's still trending up when we went to our the last conference in october uh we were all surveyed on diet trends and like keto was like the number one because right. like the still the biggest and but then I feel like when it's out there there's like books everywhere like if you walk into a bookstore it's like one of the first things you're gonna see mm -hmm. that I think people jump on that bandwagon and like try to get with it so I don't I don't know um, but but you know and I'm sure there's people that are gonna argue well it reduces oxidative stress and weight loss and this and that and that's great um, if those are your goals and like that's what you want to do and that's a lifestyle that works for you but it's really hard to adhere to the keto diet. Bill and I were talking about this. The guy that invented this for weight loss doesn't even follow it. It's just not really a scalable lifestyle choice. Right. And that really should not be what we're promoting. We shouldn't be promoting a fad diet. It should be a lifestyle that you can maintain regardless of your goals. If it's just weight loss and to be healthy and, and you know, not develop lifestyle diseases like diabetes awesome yeah. but pick a pick something that's a, something you can stick to because when you have these like cycles of dieting and not it's more harmful mm -hmm. so that's why i just hate it as a fad diet but when it comes to athletic performance carbohydrates play a very crucial role and your carbohydrates should be scaled to your activity level so it's going to be different for different people but in general carbohydrates are a good thing and i think people people like to argue well I lost six pounds my first week on keto. It's like, cool, dude. Like that was mostly water because you hold water. But if you were to stick to keto for a year for someone that was just trying to scale their calories mm -hmm. and eat like a moderate carb, healthy, general balanced diet, you're going to lose the same amount at that one year mark is what the research tell us. But your deadlift's going to suck more at the end of exactly. the year. Exactly. So like, why do we, why are we doing this? Just so like we have something cool to be a part of like a trendy group. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think the answer is that it's uh, it's easy to sell, right? I mean, the whole idea behind keto and the, the sales pitch, in my opinion, it's like, no, you know, like you're going to switch your body to burn fat, right? So the whole thing behind it is kind of this is this amazing weight loss tool that you didn't even know you had. What if your body could only burn the fat that's like already in it? And I think, I mean, that's a pretty like compelling weight loss pitch uh i think for for a lot of people and yeah. you know even performance athletes i think for for many people unless you're really you know competing on like a professional level um and it, it, that doesn't necessarily have to be in sports it could be you know like a what we call a tactical athlete um you know the the end of the day like you still care about the aesthetics as well right you know mm -hmm. very very few people that are solely performance focused um and and oftentimes high performance is going to come with the aesthetic you know changes or you know qualities that you're looking for um but the we also know the reality is, is that for people that are doing a lot of high performance stuff it doesn't necessarily mean a six-pack right like it means having right having some extra fuel in your body, um, you know, in terms of fat or whatnot to like be able to do longer, longer endurance related events or, you know, have the fuel to kind of compete in different things. So there is that difference there. And I think that if you're, you, you want the performance in the gym, but really just to kind of be someone who looks good, uh, that there, there's a conflict there and keto kind of 
targets that that yeah. specific thing. Well, I mean, manipulating carbohydrates to like manipulate your body weight is common a lot of the times when you have to make weight for something and there's sure. like space for it. Mm -hmm. But if you talk to anyone who's done bodybuilding or has to do low carb to make weight, they're going to tell you they felt really flat and like deflated right. when they limited carbs because even in your muscle, you store glycogen. Mm -hmm. So then like as soon as they go on stage or as soon as they're about to lift after they've weighed in for their like lifting competition or whatever it is, they consume carbohydrates because yep. it pumps the muscles back up and it carries out hydration and all these good things. And so it's like, you kind of have to decide what's, what's worth it and know that, um, and I, when I posted this stuff on social media, it was so awesome to get feedback from people and like messaging me and like, I did keto and like, I totally get it. Like this makes sense that you're saying this because I just felt so flat and I couldn't perform in the gym and I thought I was just going to get shredded, but I just felt like really weak and like deflated. And I was right. like, that's why. Well, what about intermittent fasting? Because I know that was one of the things I saw on your Instagram story. And traditionally, intermittent fasting, I think, has really come with the notion that not only are you limiting kind of your, your quote-unquote feeding window, but also the time at which you're eating is really important. And, you know, I, I had always heard of it as, you know, like you can't eat before noon. It was almost like this, like, mm -hmm. gremlin, like, vampire thing, you know, like <laughs> – if you feed it after midnight, you're totally screwed. Uh, but now it seems like, hey, maybe the timing doesn't really matter as much. So for intermittent fasting in general, and then especially with respect to like performance athletes, is that something they should be considering at all? Is it something you should be doing or thinking about if you're not trying to lose weight? And if so, you know, why and how do you use it as a tool? Yeah, so the big thing with intermittent fasting or the trendy one is the 16-8 where you're fasting for 16 hours, you eat for eight hours. And like you're saying, traditionally, that's the later hours. But when they presented research at the conference, when people who eat in the morning and then you should be have less in the evenings mm -hmm. actually maintain their weight loss and have better results. Mm -hmm. So they were kind of presenting this idea of, well, if intermittent fasting is the lifestyle choice you want or how you want to lose weight, why aren't those calories at the front of your day so that you're using them during the day and then maybe stop eating around six or seven at night or however you want to do it? Um, and I mean, that definitely makes sense. When it comes to performance, though, I for someone who is a performance athlete who's not trying to lose weight, I would not recommend intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm because it's more important to do things like spread your protein throughout the day and um, other things and other practices that are going to help to preserve muscle mass if you're losing weight even. So I just, I personally don't recommend it. Working out fasted was one of the things they even talked about and it actually breaks down the muscle tissue, which is usually the exact opposite of what you, what you want as a performance athlete. Mm -hmm. So if someone really does want to use intermittent fasting to lose weight and they're also consider them a recreational athlete or whatever, um, professional, whatever, I would really recommend putting that feeding window around your workouts because I like to say bookend your workouts. So in the beginning, before your workout, you should be properly fueled. And then at the end, you need to properly fuel. That way you recover and build back up that muscle tissue and that's how muscles grow. So if you're going to do it, I think that's how you should do it. But, um, I don't know. I think it's another one of those trends that I got, I think we're going to see die. I feel like it's kind of fallen off a little bit. Like yeah. it, was, it came before keto. Mm -hmm. It's kind of on the way out. Maybe keto will be following in its footsteps yeah. by a couple of years. Well, the, the concept makes sense. Um, 
and I guess their big argument has to do with uh, leptin and ghrelin. But so leptin is what tells you that you're full and that you don't need to eat anymore and it helps regulate your metabolism. It's a hormone, right? Right. It's a hormone that helps regulate appetite. And then ghrelin is what tells you you're hungry, like your stomach growling. That's how I remember that. So it tells you you're hungry and you need to eat. Well, when you sleep, your leptin is really high. That's like, oh, you know, they're good. They're resting. They don't need Mm -hmm. to eat. So this thought is just to ride that wave in the morning and then keep going with these higher leptin levels. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it actually is more tied to sleep, I believe, than anything. Because if you do not get enough sleep, and I'm sure a ton of people can relate to this, you are really hungry the next day. And you're craving like sugary foods and you're hungry. And that's because your leptin levels are off. And the ghrelin kicks in and says, well, they didn't sleep. And so they need to eat. You listened to that Joe Rogan podcast with uh, Matthew Walker, the the sleep neurologist. That was awesome. It was pretty mind-blowing. It made um, me realize I need to prioritize seven hours of sleep more. <laughs> right? At least seven hours. Yeah, I think uh, nothing that, he, that you know, Dr. Walker said on that program was necessarily, oh, my God, I never would have thought that. Uh, but every, the implications of all of these things that we kind of already know were so much bigger than what I had thought or realized before. Oh, yeah. uh, it was kind of uh, almost like scary in some ways. Like, holy shit, man! I've uh, really been fucking this up that bad. Yeah. So did he talk? Did he touch on the food appetite tie-in? I don't remember. He did a little. Yeah. He did talk a little bit about leptin and ghrelin, um, and you know, saying that when you aren't getting enough sleep. That is, you know, kind of fucking up that hormone imbalance and that not only is it making you hungrier, but it's also making you crave, you know, more simple carbohydrates and like sugary foods, et cetera. So um, it's affecting your your desire for food intake, both in terms of quantity and in terms of quality. So it's kind of like this double, double whammy of negative consequences. Oh, yeah. And it's like a cycle, too. If yeah. you're, you know stress and lack of sleep cause all these hormonal problems that make you eat like crap and feel like crap. And then like the cycle repeats. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that, uh, <clears throat> one thing that we've constantly talked about here and if you talk to George or Chris or really any of the, the coaches here at soft lead, you know, the biggest thing is that without proper rest and recovery, you will not be able to kind of take things to the next level. I mean, it's, it's the key to making any type of progress and hopefully it seems like we're starting to see that attitude of like I'll rest when I'm dead or, you know, like I have to work out until I puke. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that anything less than 110% intensity is like just not working hard enough. Um, that actually working smarter is better than working harder is starting to become the new trend. And I think with that, we're going to, you know, people will in general see not only like happier, healthier lives, but they're going to see a lot better progress as well. Absolutely. So I think it's also interesting though, and it even ties into nutrition. Like it's just all this big puzzle piece. And mm-hmm. if you're not thinking about all these things and everyone always wants to obsess over one thing, but if you don't take a step back and just think about like balance in the whole lifestyle of, you know, what's my overall like sleep, work, working out, like what are my overall patterns? Then things like even weight loss, like people don't lose weight when they're not sleeping and they're not recovering properly. And they're like, why am I staying at the same weight? And it's like, well, you're not letting your body, you know, cortisol levels go down and like, you're not letting your body like recover and recoup. And sure. No, it makes a lot of sense. I think 
kind of keep thinking back to Dr. Sinner talking about the farm as a system. And I mean, our environment is kind of the same way, right? Mm-hmm. Everything we do is, is an input in, in affecting us in some way, shape or form. And it's really hard to see. Sometimes we understand the direct influences and causes, you, you know, change X and that's going to change Y. Other times there might be 15 steps in between or that interplays with 15 other variables and that creates, you know, this kind of uh, overall effect that we don't, maybe don't even understand yet. When I did um, my graduate work, I did not do nutrition. I chose to do health promotion Mm -hmm. because that was the concept of taking a step back and thinking of health as a system. Mm -hmm. And the big thing we always talk about is like the dimensions of health. And if you think about it like a Rubik's cube, there's things you see on each side, but what you don't realize is if you twist and turn one, they're all interconnected. Right. And we would talk about everything from, you know, physical health to vocational health, emotional, sexual health, like everything is all tied together and these little manipulations affect this whole system. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, this is uh just getting off on a tangent for a second. I keep going back to this farm stuff, but uh, there was a really cool article in the Daily Mail, maybe like a I don't know, less than a month ago, I think. It was talking about this farm in the UK that had been a, a basically like monoculture crop operation, and commodity prices had kind of swung in a direction that they were just like, man, we, we're not making money doing this. And there was a grant available from some, you know, UK like land ministry to kind of let their land go wild. And they took the money to see what happened. And in the beginning, they were like all this, I think it was like ragweed, all of a sudden started like taking over the pastures and they couldn't cut it as part of, you know, getting this grant money. And they were besides themselves, what are we going to do about this? It's going to take forever to clear out, et cetera, et cetera. And six months later, like millions of butterflies descend upon their farm and start laying, you know, like spinning cocoons and eating this crop. And two months later, like it was gone. And the whole article then goes on to talk about how this whole system like redeveloped with as land kind of allowed was allowed to go wild that, you know, different insects and animals were kind of like coming out of the woodwork, almost out of nowhere. And using the resources that were coming back and that the whole system began to develop and kind of like manage itself without going crazy in one direction. So it's, uh, I think that there's such a connection too, because if you try to over manipulate one thing in like this human body system, I think the same thing happens and we got so obsessed over little things. And I think if we start to take a more holistic approach, Mm -hmm. just what happened there like your body will take care of it like it's an amazing thing if you just start to take care of the system as a whole stop obsessing over like the amount of protein timing every day and just like take a step back look at the whole system and it takes care of itself yeah well so what from the conference what how is that going to affect the softly nutrition program what are the changes that we'll see coming through the pipeline based on the the new knowledge that's been absorbed into your brain um, definitely going to incorporate some of the things I learned as far as food choices and even, um, more so how I interact with people, because I think people ask so many different questions of like, should I do this? Should I do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and like they talked a lot about supplements and I think that's like probably the biggest question I get. <clears throat> One of the big things right now that's like trendy is 
antioxidant supplements and um, nitric oxide supplements. And basically the conclusion is that they don't work. So you can stop buying the beet powders and the uh, different antioxidant things. But I think that like that will probably influence things more is. And those are the idea behind those. Sorry to cut you off is that those are anti-inflammatories as well, right? And that those are cancer or maybe cancer fighting agents. Yeah. Well, the whole antioxidant thing, um, it's kind of like, I guess, counterintuitive is that when you work out, you cause oxidative stress on the system. Mm -hmm. And so the thought is, is if we can get antioxidants into the body that we can reduce that oxidative stress and cause like a quicker recovery and better performance. But what they found is when you take these like antioxidant supplements, um, you're not really getting it to the source. And for the antioxidant to work, it needs to already be in the body at the source, like the muscle of where the stress is coming from. Mm -hmm. So you can't really necessarily get it to the source. So even though in theory it sounds really sound, when it comes to practical application, it's just not. And I thought that that was um, really interesting. And the thing with antioxidants is you can take it too far and you can, like there is an upper limit of what's not healthy and kind of like counterproductive. There was one really interesting thing of something that actually works, which I feel like is very rare that you have researchers say this supplement works. Um, But it was NAC, which stands for um, N-acetylcysteine. I think I'm saying that right. Mm-hmm. All these big biochemistry words I don't like. Right. Flashbacks to college nightmares. Um, but basically, that prevents muscle fatigue. It's actually mm-hmm. what they give people when they OD on um, Tylenol. Hmm. And it has virtually no negative effect or negative consequence, but that can actually help re- like uh, reduce the fatigue. And that's what they're trying to do, I think, with a lot of these supplements is if we can reduce the muscle fatigue, they can perform longer and better. Mm-hmm. Um, which was not true with antioxidants, not true with the nitric oxide supplements. Um, but they did find that NAC does prevent fatigue. So I thought that that was really interesting. But things like uh, taking too many antioxidants actually ends up blunting your training response. So like you can overdo it with certain things and certain supplements. So um, if you're one of those people that does uh, antioxidant supplements, be careful because it actually will end up having a negative effect on training. Right. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing all this awesome information with yeah, us. It's fun nerding it. out. <laughs> yeah. It's cool to hear about it. And we're excited to see uh, even more amazing information flow out of the brain of Brooke West. <laughs> so thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next week live from Softlead HQ.